1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Cristiano Aman. He is the president of mobile semiconductor giant Qualcomm. Uh, this is really a fascinating conversation. His career has taken him all over the world, uh, from Brazil to Tokyo to San Diego. Uh, he has been both an engineer and a team uh, product leader all the way up to Uh, Corporate manager as as president. Uh, Really fascinating guy with a lot of interesting um, background and material. I think you'll find it intriguing. With no further ado, my conversation with Cristiano Amon. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Cristiano Amon. He is the president of Qualcomm. Previously, he has worked at such August firms as NEC Electronics, and Ericsson. He has a unique mix of business engineering and operational skills. He ran Qualcomm's semiconductor business for five years. He successfully built the chipset strategy and business in China, and he has been managing Qualcomm's product roadmap since 2008. Cristiano Amon, welcome to Bloomberg.
2: Thank you, Barry. Very happy to be here.
1: So let's uh, trace your career back to the mid-90s. 1995, you joined Qualcomm as an engineer. Um, you were born in Brazil. You grew up in, in Sao Paulo. How did you uh, find your way to Qualcomm in the U.S. after college?
2: Well, it's interesting. I, You know, I... I You know, I've been fortunate enough since I graduated in engineering school, I was working cellular. I was working wireless and um, started my career in Brazil working in the first cellular systems uh, that have been um, uh, implemented in Brazil. Those are the analog days uh, Uh and uh, for a Japanese company, NEC, actually a first Left Brazil to go to Tokyo. So, in uh, it's about 1994, uh, you know, I was working as an engineer. They decided to transfer me to the headquarters in Japan, and off I go uh, exactly from from uh, Brazil to Japan exactly on the other side of the globe. Right. And so uh, if
1: I remember correctly, NEC is Nippon Electronics Corporation? Yes, uh, what part of Japan was that located? Uh,
2: I, I moved to Tokyo. Oh, really? So first time I left Brazil. Very exciting. Yes. I went to Tokyo. I was there for about a year. Mm-hmm. And when I when, uh, was working at NEC, we're thinking about going to Digital Cellular. I work in their uh, system engineering group. Uh, we knew of this small company out in san diego california called qualcomm uh-huh. that had this uh, cdma technology for digital cellular and uh, we needed to talk to qualcomm to uh, understand how we could build cdma uh, base stations
1: and and explain to the listeners what does cdma stand for what does it do well c- cdma is
2: actually the technology that put qualcomm on the map mm-hmm. it's um it stands for Code Division Multiple Access. It's a complicated term, but, but really, what
1: does it actually do in in the world?
2: Uh, you know, uh, in the two G cellular. Mm-hmm. We're, remember, we're Way now back we're when? now we're now in five G now, but in two G cellular, you allow uh, cellular to become uh, uh, digital and increase the capacity. Uh, the the the.
1: And that the was claim a sub- to
2: fame the claim to fame of CDMA was when uh, sellers started and and people realized everybody wants to have a phone right uh, existing original 1G systems the analog system walkie-talkie time. you couldn't really get anybody unless you have 10x improvement in capacity and wow. that's what CDMA did right. but going back to your question so I was in Japan uh, working in Tokyo Um and, uh, and I traveled to San Diego back in 1994, kind of late 94, and uh, uh, met this company Qualcomm and uh, start having a business relationship with Qualcomm and a technical relationship about CDMA. And then, uh, you know, that led to Qualcomm to make me a proposal to join a company and to join Qualcomm in 1995. So, so that, you,
1: you moved to San Diego? Is that where you were um, working?
2: I, I, I moved back to Brazil. Uh-huh. Uh, helped them uh, set up the operations in Brazil and Latin America during the year of uh, uh, later part of 95 uh, and 96. Why was that?
1: Because, because Brazil had such an advanced cellular system, they wanted to then upgrade to, to uh, the sec- next level?
2: In the, in the, in the mid-90s, um, uh, when Qualcomm developed the CDMA technology, uh, all of the, around the globe, all of the analog uh, 1G systems uh-huh. uh, was going to upgrade to 2G. So then Qualcomm set up offices worldwide, including uh, the headquarters for Latin America was in Brazil, uh, really tried to get spectrum allocated in, um, in the systems to upgrade to CDMA. So, so Brazil
1: I, covered all of South America.
2: Um it was the Brazil office, uh, cover all of America. When I was uh, when I was back then, in uh, ninety five and in the, and and uh, ninety six, the early part of ninety six, I was uh, you know uh, going all over the place to Argentina, to Chile, to um, to at the time we to Mexico, we we had CMA projects everywhere, and then uh, the later part of ninety six, I moved to San Diego mm-hmm. and. And that's and, where I live now.
1: And what was your um, title uh, when you moved to San Diego? What was your job
2: there? Well, I started Qualcomm as as an engineer. And uh, when I moved to San Diego, that was back in 1996, I was a manager of uh, uh,
1: technology. Mm-hmm. So you have other engineers reporting directly to you. Uh,
2: back in, uh, I believe so, back yeah. in, the, in the 96 timeframe. Yeah, I joined Qualcomm as an engineer in um, mm-hmm. Boston. Been uh, going through the ranks,
1: so so now you move to you relocate to the United States. Is that any culture shock following Brazil and and Japan? What was that? No, like?
2: not really. Uh,
1: nice, what, nicer weather than Japan. Um,
2: uh, you cannot complain about San Diego. So <laughs> we're very spoiled in San Diego. There's <laughs> right. there's uh, nothing like it. But uh, yeah, it was just, it was uh, no culture shock. I think uh, in especially I. I You know today, after all those years, I you know san Diego is is home to me. you know everything feels home.
1: So you've been in charge of the QCT product roadmap. Explain to us exactly what that is.
2: Okay, so when you think of a company like Qualcomm, mm-hmm. Qualcomm has two business. Um, one business we call uh, QTL, the Qualcomm Technology Licensing. And in the business, it's uh, you know we do a lot of advanced research, um, unlike other companies that uh, they you know develop products uh, uh, based on on different standards. We are a creator of standards. We create new technology. We created like three G and four G and five G, and we license the technology so anybody can build. That's the licensing business.
1: Wait, Qualcomm. Uh, created each of the cellular standards beyond <coughs> 1g they created 2g they created 3 4 5 and so, i'm going to ask you later what comes after 5g we'll we'll get okay, to that the
2: way to think about it every standard uh every generation of wireless it's uh whether it's 2g 3g 4g and now 5g it's it's uh, based on a standard. Uh, there's a standard body that has standardized this for contributions from any company. Mm -hmm. Uh, Through all the digital cellular generations, it started with 3G all the way to right now in 5G that we're building. Qualcomm has been the largest contributor of fundamental technology to this standard. So in a way, yes, many of the things that we do today with our phones is in part based of Qualcomm inventions and has been part of every single standard. So that's a licensing business. that license the technology. The QCT is Qualcomm CDMA technologies, is the chipset business. Right. So when you think about phones with Qualcomm processors and Qualcomm chips, the Snapdragon.
1: So Snapdragon is the chipset that is Qualcomm the chip uses. And that goes part of into... QCT. To what, that goes into Samsung, Android, Apple, everybody?
2: Qualcomm chips go to the to majority of uh, of the phones, yes, it goes into your Samsung phone. But also beyond phones, our chips, uh, not all our chips are labeled Snapdragon, but our chips go to Wi-Fi routers, go to uh, the infotainment and dashboard in your car, mm-hmm. uh, Uh, goes to many things in your home. I think we go to your smart watch. We have chips now in a variety of products. That's what QCT does. Quite fascinating.
1: So what was your sense of the environment in the 1990s? You joined Qualcomm in uh, 95. Did you have any sense that the whole tech sector was in a bubble and we were going to see a pretty big uh, drop?
2: So I joined Qualcomm. In '95, and there was a lot of growth in the wireless industry. It was different than the dot com bubble because the wireless was really growing and continue to grow. I think um, straight through people wanted to go cell phones. Yes. However, Mm -hmm. I did left Qualcomm. I uh, I, I had a short period of time. I went to Ericsson, and then I joined a VC right before the dot com bubble burst. And Mm -hmm. I joined a VC. I moved to Colorado. And uh, we, we, we had raised a lot of money. We had a lot of investments. And then with the bubble burst, I, I you know I had to deal with it. And, and it was interesting. It was a different phase of my career. Uh, one of our investments we have was an operator in uh, Brazil, mm-hmm. a cell phone operator, that uh, actually went uh, bankrupt. And because when the bubble burst, a lot of the investors, uh, you know, pulled out, it was uh, early days, uh, it's still, you know, building. So I took a completely different change in my career. I, I went back to Brazil. I was the CTO of this operator, and then later COO, doing a restructuring uh, uh, work. And uh, it was fun. It was, uh, it about, uh, I learned a lot. It was about three years. And uh, when we turned that, to positive EBITDA and sold the operator and and that's when Qualcomm asked me, Hey, are you bored? You want to come back to San Diego? And I came back in all four.
1: So Qualcomm recruits you back in two thousand and four, only this time the company you left and the one you rejoin, somewhat different. Enough time has passed that things have changed. What sort of role did you come back to and what sort of company did you find when you when you got there?
2: That's a good question.
1: So when I came back, uh,
2: company was very different. We uh, company had started as uh, as a company that was developing CDMA technology at that time. Three uh, uh, G was you uh, uh, a more mature. Company was also going into. Another technology, there was a variant called WCDMA, Wideband uh, CDMA, uh, making strides into other market, also uh, developing into the multimedia capabilities of the chipset. So the chip business at the time uh, started to to grow significantly. It was a sm- very t- smaller part of Qualcomm when, when I left. It started to be more significant at the time. So I joined. I was asked to to run the CDMA business for Qualcomm in the chip division, and uh, it was interesting. It was interesting time because uh, if you remember a little bit of uh, of what I have done in in my career before that, right? I I have uh, you know I had uh, at worked at Qualcomm in kind of the early days, then I went uh, gained some you know, uh, work at Ericsson and the infrastructure, I gained uh, some VC experience. I did uh, a difficult restructuring job. And and I had a lot of operator experience. And at that time, what happened is many of the CDMA operators were considering uh, abandoning the technology and switching to GSM. And Qualcomm wanted uh, uh, somebody to take over the business to find out how we could uh, you know, reverse that trend and generate growth again for CDMA. So that's like the that was the problem statement for me, and uh, and maybe my experience at the time in solving difficult problems, having some operator experience, you know, uh, they said well, you know he, he probably can do that. So so I did that. Uh, it was a uh, it was great. It was a successful journey, and I think uh, my uh, success in that ended up uh, putting me in a position to manage all the different products of Qualcomm uh, roadmap in the chip division a couple of years later.
1: Wow, that, that's really interesting. How quickly do those chipsets um, turn obsolete or, or ask differently, <clears throat> given how fast we've gone from 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G? It seems like the lifespan of each one of these new generations is much less than five years. So are these chips practically obsolete when they leave the factory? What? How, how long are they good for before <clears throat> the the new hotness comes along? Okay a uh, very very
2: interesting question especially uh, uh, you know i like that question especially because uh, how we think about our business and i'll tell you i'm going to answer your question with an interesting metaphor I, I, I promise i'll make this interesting so the answer to your question is in the, today's mobile environment uh, the chip the chip business is it's very competitive first of all it's very capital intensive but when you buy, when you do a chip, the way for you to think about it, and I'll answer your question, it take, we, ha- bef- we have to think about what we're going to do in a chip two years before the chip. So we, two years before the chip is done, we need to decide what capabilities this chip will have. Like think about a Snapdragon in your Samsung phone. How, how good is the graphics? How good is the camera? How good is the gaming capability and all of that? It takes two years to develop. Then you launch into a device. And let's say you go buy your Samsung Galaxy uh,
1: device. Well, I'm the only guy to say that. Mm -hmm. I got the new Apple 11 with the big camera um, Mm -hmm. only because I wanted that really nice uh, camera quality and, and zoom. And I've never had a competitive... Since smartphones come out, I've only had an Apple, so I have no experience we need with to get Samsung. You, we
2: need to get you with a 5G phone. 5 exactly. more, more important than Samsung or Apple, you need to get to
1: a 5G phone.
2: But and going back so to when, that. So
1: when do they become yeah. ubiquitous? When are 5G uh, everywhere?
2: 5G everywhere. Probably in, uh, I think, all metropolitan areas will have 5G cover in 20. But
1: I want to go back to your question. Next, 2020. Wow. 2020.
2: That's... i go back to your question. So, two years to do a chip. You launch your phone. Six months, that phone is... It's obsolete, and there's another model, right? Right. So, so it's a very interesting business, because you have to, you have to decide what to do two years in advance, and you launch a, a flagship, state of the art smartphone, and uh, and in six months to an year, you have to all over again. So mm-hmm. the metaphor that I use, uh, I feel like chip business, is like gladiator business. Yeah. Uh, you you have you and your competitors. You know, uh, no matter how successful you are, you always one chip away uh, from losing your success, right? So you have to build the best possible chip it can build. And it's like a gladiator. You go to the colosseum, you're going to fight. And uh, if you lose, bad outcome. If you win... You just read you eligible to go to the Colosseum one more time. So the winners uh, the winners
1: <laughs> earn the right to fight again, and the losers was, uh, are dead. That uh, okay. that's challenging. So let's let's talk about some of the competitors in the chip space. There's Nvidia and there's AMD, and who else is the hot chip of the moment these days? Well,
2: the chip industry is very diverse and depend on the segment in the space that we are uh we end up you know we compete with different people depending
1: on what we're doing different things yeah so
2: for example in the space that we are doing smartphones we compete uh sometimes with samsung their own chip right
1: Uh, they make a lot uh,
2: they they make their own chip we compete with uh huawei uh phones that they use their own chip now When we go to PCs, we compete with Intel. We just entered the PC space. The new Microsoft Surface X has Qualcomm Uh uh, Microsoft uh, chip on it. So we compete with Intel. When we go into... End up competing with MD. when we go in the automotive space, and and we're doing the chips that does your dashboard and the infotainment. Right. We compete with Nvidia, so we compete with different companies. Uh, one good thing about Qualcomm is that we're now expanded to so many industries. So so we 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 are going from phones to cars to Internet of Things to compute and many other things.
1: So let's talk a little bit about leadership um, from the top of a company. How does one go from being an engineer to a manager? Those seem like very very different skill sets uh, yeah I you know it's it's it,
2: maybe the way to think about it is as an engineer, especially if you're doing complex systems, you have to learn how to manage teams because you cannot do everything yourself and and maybe that's how the whole thing starts but I, at least for me I think uh, the success in my career was also uh, to have this balance of understanding the technology because of my engineering background because of my engineering experience but also understanding the business and I and I think once you once you do both, you have both the business uh, and the technical understanding. It's uh, it's it's kind of easier uh, for you to go to a manager role and be able to lead teams and make sure you know we have the right strategy. We're working on the right things. We're doing the right products. But you know, I I also think that uh, the unique personality things as well. Uh, like the approach that I always took is I always want to make sure that the people in my team are are doing the thing. Uh, that they can do better than I can do myself. Mm-hmm. It's about multiplying the ability for you to multiply uh, your capabilities by having better people than you are, you know, doing the job. And I think that that makes good managers. And I and 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 one of my recipes for success within Qualcomm, we we're very unique culture. We're very uh, matrix in a way. It's uh, it's the ability. You know, to uh, exercise leadership, but also uh, recognizing, you know, treating all the people on my team as peers. And uh, and and I think that's, you get a little bit of that as working on engineering teams and developing projects together.
1: So how does the role of president differ from that of chief executive officer, the CEO mm. of the company? Uh, Malenkoff has been there for quite a while, hasn't he? Yeah, it? Steve and I have been working together for a long time, mm-hmm. actually. Uh, it was uh, if you look,
2: of uh, you know, the uh, Steve is the CEO, Jim Thompson, uh, which is our CTO, and uh, it, when I joined Qualcomm, uh, for the second time back in, in 2004, I was running a CDMA business, Molenkov was uh, in the UMTS business or the WCDMA business, so we've been working for a very, very long time. The way it works today, uh, Steve is the CEO, he has uh, uh, you know Alex Rogers, which runs our licensing business, uh, you know, reporting to Steve Molenkoff. and you can look at me as probably run all of the operating business of the company. So all the other business of the company are under the president, and I and I and I and I, and I run them. So it, the president role within Qualcomm, it's uh, it's the person responsible for the operating role of the management.
1: Mm. So you guys now seem to have resolved all the outstanding issues with Apple. There was a fairly contentious lawsuit. There was a a hostile takeover attempt. What was it like within the company when all this, what was previously, I think, a pretty good relationship? How did it go off the rails and how did it uh, eventually get resolved.
2: Oh, there's a lot in there. Oh, well, we've been to a, we've been to a lot. We have two years of unbelievable turmoil, and I'll say it was a great opportunity for the company to to become stronger. I think show how the company is resilient. Specifically to your Apple question, uh, yes, we had our disagreements about you know the the licensing and the value of the technology we 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 produce. As I told you before, uh, we we none of those standards will be possible none of the generations of wireless will be possible with Qualcomm technology we license for everybody to build but we want to you know get paid on intellectual property and uh, and we stand by that principle but we're glad we'll resolve it and uh, and the good thing about it is resolve in a way that is a win for Apple win for Qualcomm we're back in business together we have a multi-year agreement we're working you know, day and night or make sure they have a great, you know, iPhone or 5G technology and business continues.
1: That's, that's really interesting. So you're at the top of the food chain in Qualcomm. Who do you turn to when you're looking for advice?
2: You know, when I need advice, I talk to a lot of, uh, you know, the other members of the Qualcomm management team, uh, uh, you know, I also, we have a good relationship with our board of directors, so we have a lot of experienced people on our board. But I also have a great uh, uh, relationship to many senior executives across our partners and customers and uh, and many of those uh, some relationships are helpful when you look at a different perspective on how to do things and uh, you know I'm uh, I'm somebody that really value relationships and also personal relationships and and I make full use of those
1: and one of the names that always seems to come up is Sadia Nadella who's now CEO of Microsoft how did that relationship come <clears throat> interesting
2: about? there was a there was a there's an interesting uh, article that uh uh that came out uh it, when I answer exactly that question. Uh Wall Street are, Journal. Wall Street Journal. Uh, guess
1: guess and, where I found that. Yes. And uh in fact they specifically mentioned Nick Cowser, yes, Roberto padavani yes. and Robert Sechabal yes. along with Sadia Nadella. Yes and i could tell a little bit and about why. Those why. are all technology rock stars, aren't they?
2: Uh, some are. Some are in the different categories. So so Roberto, yes and uh, that's the answer to your question, uh, and I'll walk you why those four. I think Roberto. Uh, when I came back to Qualcomm in the second time around, Qualcomm, as I talked to, you, was a different company when I when I left, and uh, Roberto was the CTO at that time. Somebody I have a lot of respect. He's, uh, you know, uh, Alexander Grumbell Prize winner for the ITPoE has done tremendous uh, contributions to engineering the wireless industry. And he helped me uh, you know, navigate through Qualcomm, also provided me a lot of sound advice uh, to my career. The other one was Nick Kauser. Nick Hauser was, uh, earlier in my career, uh, when I went to a VC, I worked for Nick. Nick is another one of those very famous individuals in wireless. Nick was the first CTO of Macaw Cellular, which is the first cellular operator in the world, period. And later became the CTO of AT&T Wireless. And uh, it's, I, few people have as much experience in wireless as Nick. Roberto Setubo was different. One of the other things that I do besides uh, my job at Qualcomm, a, I am on the board of the re, largest retail bank in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Banking industry, very different than the, the wireless and tech industry. Uh, the chairman of the bank uh, is uh, Roberto Setubo. He's also a board member of Shell, uh, uh, an oil company, and a uh, very experienced individual. Uh our relationship is kind of new. I've been uh, over two years now, and and uh, in the bank board, but it's another person also that give me interesting perspective. How he look at things, how he look at things within the bank, and uh, sometimes it's good to have the different viewpoint. Satya is different. It's a uh, we, we have a business relationship with Microsoft, therefore, uh, you know, we have a relationship with Satya, but uh, Satya is more about. Uh, what he need to do at Microsoft to change Microsoft from a Windows client company into an cl- enterprise cloud company mm-hmm. is a little bit like the change I I have been doing at Qualcomm from a mobile-only company into going into all of the other industries that are being transformed by mobile. So it's kind of – the, the Satya is like, okay – It can be done. It was done, so we can do it. That's kind of uh, along
1: those lines. Mm, Quite interesting. So let's talk about um, new versus potential or existing products. How do you balance what you're working on today with, hey, we have a new idea for something that it's 6G or 7G? How does internally, how does a company balance between what they need to sell to bring in revenue today and how they think about- the next couple of years of
2: products—that's uh, actually the uh, recipe for Qualcomm success. We have teams that are working on the products that we're going to launch next year. Mm-hmm. We have teams that are working on the on technologies and products for the next five years, but we have teams that are looking like ten
1: years out. Ten and, years uh, out. Yes. So, so really, think about a decade ago versus today, two thousand and nine. Did we have any idea about how popular drones would be? You barely had smartphones out there. A decade seems like a lifetime in technology. You know, Barry, 2010, um, when
2: when we launch, uh, you know, 4G, and you're buying your 4G smartphone, that's where we start working on 5G. Right and uh, and I I've, like I said that's the recipe I think, for Qualcomm success. Like right now, we're very excited about five G transformation, five G, and it's we're just the beginning of that. It's gonna last for ten years. We have technologies coming for multiple years on five G, but we also need to start thinking right now what's gonna come next. And that's six G. I think so.
1: So five G <laughs> is I mean three four five have three two to three to four. Each have been pretty nice steps up, but it looks like 4G to 5G is a giant leap yes. in bandwidth and the ability to stream video almost instantly uh, over cellular. That was unimaginable 10 years ago.
2: Yes, but uh, if I may, 5G is bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's how you should think about 5G, and that's why you get so much attention, uh, why you get so much conversation going across uh uh, multiple industries. Today, we we have pretty much everything, everything in this room uh, that uses electricity. You just assume it's there. Has it's a just, chip in it. No, no. That has electricity. You right. just assume it's there. You connect to the wall and, because you need electricity and you assume you're going to find a plug and it's right. going to be there. Ubiquitous. This is what 5G will do to the internet. So... 5G is a technology that's been designed not only to provide massive bandwidth to your phones, but to connect everything else to the internet. So once 5G is done, when we're done through this decade of 5G and the network's fully deployed, we're not going to be having conversations about what the use case is. Internet's going to be there, and you're going to assume it's there, like electricity, and everything will be connected to the internet. So it's been designed to connect billions of devices around us in
1: addition to our phones. That's why this transformation is so big. So let me push back against that. So if you've traveled to Asia or Europe, you know that the cellular system seems much more robust. You don't drop calls. There aren't one bar or no bar spaces. The broadband is bigger and cheaper. The thought of internet everywhere in the United States, wireless, hey, they still haven't figured out how to make sure I can make a goddamn phone call in Manhattan without losing the signal. I mean, the biggest city in New York, we haven't figured that out yet. Why should I think that the that everything is going to connect? By the way, it?
2: we had very good service in San Diego. But, but having right. said that, let me tell you this. Um, uh, I hear you, and this is actually one of the biggest opti- obstacles in 5G. In the United States right now, and that's not unique to the United States. In Europe, uh, that's actually one area that still have a lot to be done.
1: Is that just a function of not enough cell towers up, yes, or yes? So the, blame here's... the wireless carriers. No, no. I'm blaming, not no, you. No, no no, Ryan. no, no.
2: They're not their not their fault. Here's what's happening. For example, China. Yeah. Uh, China is going to build one million. Uh, 5G base stations by the end of 20, 1 wow. million. That's that is, a lot. That's equivalent to 10 times the, the number of total base stations across all generations of a single uh, you know, U.S. carrier. Amazing. Here's what the issue is in the United States and in Europe too. Carriers uh, need to build uh, infrastructure. But for that, they need to build new sites. And they have to negotiate city by city to get permits and zoning to get the sites up. And especially for 5G, you need to densify the network because some of those 5G base stations, they look like Wi-Fi access points. Oh, really? And and they're very small, and you need many of them. Got it. And you need to put sites everywhere. And uh, the number one, if you ask every carrier in America right now, What's the number one struggle to get five G everywhere? Is can I get the approval to get new sites? And I, I think we have to do something about it. I, you know, I, it's okay. It's understandable that. In China, they will issue a document, and then one million sites right. will be built. Nothing like uh, a
1: centrally planned uh, economy. If you want to uh, have uh, full self-sufficiency, uh,
2: you know I prefer our system. But uh, we have to find a way that we can accelerate the process of building new sites because I think the U.S. economy will benefit from a vibrant and competitive 5G infrastructure in place. Will help so many industries. We talk about. trillion of goods and services of economic growth just based on 5G. And if you remember... If we didn't have 4G built, United States Pioneer 4G it was the first country to deploy 4G nationwide. Because right. of that, we got Instagram, we got Uber, we right. got Amazon, we got all those companies the Europeans don't have. And uh, 5G is going to be no different. So we need to get the infrastructure built.
1: Can we stick these 5G um, receivers or transmitters on the old towers? It can yes,
2: go up- you can put in all the old towers and you
1: need new towers. So, or And I, I noticed that a lot of, especially when you're high up in, in a, any sort of office building in New York, and you look down on the lower towers, you see the roofs are just festooned with wires and, and antenna. Are, are those 4G and 5G type um, those transmitters?
2: Are, those are 4G. You're going to upgrade those to 5G. And and you need to add what we call uh, 5G small cells. They look like Wi-Fi routers, but you uh-huh. just need to sprinkle them everywhere. Everywhere,
1: um, so they don't have to be a pie. They could be at street can, level.
2: That's correct, huh? That
1: that's quite that's quite interesting. Um, so we've been talking about innovation and how new ideas come along. Are they primarily driven by the engineers? Are they driven by leadership? Where does innovation come from? Um, I, the
2: answer is both, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it, it comes it comes uh, from a company like Qualcomm from Understanding what are the problems that need to be solved on on the business side, and I'll and I'll go a little bit in history. Uh, if when we when we started, for example, three G from two G, uh, when when we put ourselves in the map, when two G was CDMA, in three G we want to solve one problem, which is we need to connect phones to the internet, right, uh, and. You know, after that was done, you probably remember using your Blackberry and people doing emails and all the great things you can do when you had internet in your phones. So the first thing we need to do, how to get phones internet, that's how 3G got created. We need to get internet, we need to solve that problem. 4G was a bigger challenge. 4G is we have now two problems to solve. One problem to solve is we needed to bring mobile broadband, broadband to mobile. But then, what happens, Barry? When you have broadband for mobile, you need a computer. So we need to make those phones into computers. So we needed to develop. We we didn't have a processor business. We need to create a business of the Snapdragon business. We need to create a processor because in we were the first company to do a gigahertz clock CPU and a battery-powered device. Because they, now they have broadband, you need a computer to to deal with it. Right. And it's fascinating. It transforms society today. The smartphones, where all of us with our mobile computer in our hands, and that's our most loved and inseparable device. Right. Five G innovation. We have more problems to solve. People want unlimited data. People don't want to talk about. Uh, I'm on. Do I? I'm going to put this on the cloud, and I am going to leave it over there because I'm always going to be connected. So, problems to solve in five G is. Can I make your wireless reliable? You are going to trust that you're going to be connected. You can leave all this stuff in the cloud because it's always going to be able to get it because you're going to have a reliable connectivity. Can I build a system for a society that wants unlimited data and want to connect everything to the Internet and and also allow you to have mission-critical capabilities in wireless so we take it to other industries like autonomous cars? Those are problems to solve. From that, Qualcomm creates fundamental technology. That's how
1: innovation gets done. Quite quite interesting. Uh, So technology, at least in the form of Facebook and Amazon and and Google and Apple, has become under assault from society in general, but but also from regulators who have been complaining. The politicians complain it's too big, it's anti-competitive, they're a monopoly. But what are your thoughts on the state of the giant players in technology and what might the future of of policy and regulation look like for the Googles and Amazons and Facebooks and Apples of the world? Huh. It's uh,
2: difficult for me to comment on those companies, Uh, uh, but I'll say from a Qualcomm perspective, uh we're not that big yet. Uh, we want to, we wanted to continue growing, but I'll, 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 give you a general answer about uh, technology, uh, technology. It's, it's, a uh, it's a very important part of the economy. And, uh, and into many aspects, uh, I look at, at the technology transition is really a force for good. Um, if we look at what we do as a company, uh, while like with everything that, uh, if you don't have boundaries, and uh, you know, you're know you gonna have problems, like with everything. It's mm-hmm. like, uh, uh, if you spend too much time on social media on your phone, or if you eat too much, <laughs> it's gonna be, you know, the, the, everything in excess is a problem. Sure. But if you look at how uh, the technology that we create transforms society, like, and how, how, we can connect people now, no matter where they are, how people run their business out of their phones, how we increase productivity. I think it's been not only a, an economic engine, but a force for good. And, and I feel, you know, our mission is to continue developing technology to transform society. And many of the things that you do, it's, uh, you know, it's inevitable. It's just part of, uh, you know, continual uh, innovation and evolution of,
1: uh, of what, what we all do. Quite quite interesting. We have been speaking with Cristiano Amon, president of Qualcomm. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things technology related. You can find that at Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz I'm Barry Ritholtz You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Cristiano. Thank you so much for doing this. I know you have a plane to catch, so what I'm going to do is take the standard questions we ask all our guests, and we're going to turn this into a speed round. We're going to blow Sounds through good. this. I'm ready. You ready? First car you ever own? Year, make, and model.
2: Uh, it's a Fiat Tipo. It was. Uh, I bought
1: that car in 1993. Right. Um, what's Black. the m- What's the most important thing people don't know about you? Uh, the most important thing they don't know about me.
2: Uh, I I martial arts. I was where I was probably. Oh uh, no! I'll tell you. I am uh, fascinated with cars, especially oh, really? classic cars and uh, muscle uh-huh. cars. And uh, every car I. I have, I end up uh, modifying it a lot.
1: G- give, us a, give us a car that you have, and I'll tell you one that I'm uh, looking to pick up from your hometown. I, and I think I think this will kind of, uh,
2: yes, it will be in the category of a fascinating thing people don't know about me. Like I drive to work uh, Volkswagen Golf.
1: I'm so sorry.
2: I I modify that Golf. I, I change everything. It looks like uh, uh, from the outside, it looks the same from the inside, it's like those cars from Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> so, so that's it. And then I am, uh, I have another project I can tell you later that I'm uh, restoring a car. That's so, probably it.
1: So, this is a car I've fallen in love with from the 1970s, and the best examples of them are from your they're either in uh Colombia or Brazil, the Toyota FJ40, that that truck. Sort of like a jeep, and they're everywhere in South America, and they're n- there's no rust on them down there. So I'm going to your backyard to pick up. Uh, That's an a FJ. good car. That's a good car. They're, they're great. Um, who are your early mentors? Who influenced your career? <clears throat> um, I there's many. I'll
2: say in uh, starting at NEC, at, uh, you know the the president of NEC in Brazil, who was uh-huh. a big influence on me. What's his uh, name? It was uh, uh, Gilberto Garbi. He's, mm-hmm. uh, he's a professor now. Um, I also had uh, people that I met throughout my career. And i always been like this. Every, every different job that I have, I always had people that I look up to and say, I can learn something from that individual. It's been a constant history to my career. Hmm. Uh,
1: tell us about some of your favorite books. What are you reading? What do you like to read? comic books really give us some names uh,
2: I, I like, are you
1: are you enjoying watchmen on hbo
2: i i am enjoying that and i also i am i'm now starting gotten
1: as well uh-huh. on netflix and uh do you like uh, the whole marvel universe have yes, you been I tracking do. avengers or are you like a spider-man sort of guy uh no i like marvel mm-hmm. um where was i going with that uh tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience you know, I when I was doing
2: the restructuring of a bankrupt operator in Brazil, plenty of uh, attempts that didn't work. But uh, and uh, you know, until we got it right, it was a difficult environment. But I learned a lot from that. I think uh, ability to learn from mistakes uh, it's invaluable. You can never get that in any MBA training, and right. that's a very good tool I think for managers. Uh, what do you do for fun? I spend a lot of time with my kids. I also do martial arts. I've mm-hmm. been uh, uh, training martial arts for a number of years. And actually, uh, my my buddy that I trained for eight years and as my sparring buddy is uh, the San Diego Harbor Police uh, Chief.
1: Oh, <laughs> quite quite interesting. Uh, tell us what you're most optimistic about and most pessimistic about within the world of technology today. I'm
2: very optimistic about 5G. I think 5G will have an impact even greater than, you know, what people are talking about it right now. I think the transformation will be tremendous. I think what I'm pessimistic about it is, uh, you know, the complexity that it, it will take uh, to build those networks. It's one of the topics we talk about it. You have to build infrastructure, with, and it starts with You build, and then they will come. And I think we still have a lot of work to do to get that done.
1: Uh, What sort of advice would you give a recent college graduate who is considering a career in either technology or engineering?
2: Okay. Um, What's very valuable for me, uh, try to understand, and it's the early that you can understand this, the more successful you're going to be. Try to understand what are the things that you're really good at. And what are the things that you're not and try to focus your career in, in the areas that you can put, you know, your skills and quality to work and try to get together with people that can help you in the areas that you are not. And it's interesting. The, the, one of the greatest tools that helped me a lot in managing my career is really not focusing on what are the things that I can do well, but understanding what are the things that I cannot do so I can overcome those challenges.
1: And our final question, what do you know about the world of technology and mobile and semiconductors today that you wish you knew 25 years ago when you were first getting started? Uh, I,
2: that's a very profound question. What I'll say is when if I had the understanding of uh, how broad mobile uh, would have become, we'll, we'll probably made some bets in uh, different segments earlier. But, you know, everything has its time. Right. I know that was his last question, but I am intrigued by what you told me about the FJ40. Oh, okay. So... Uh, so there's a car that I always loved as a kid. Yeah. It was, It's. Uh, I loved the, the muscle cars. And uh-huh. it was a Chevrolet that was designed in Brazil for the Brazilian market. It's a Chevrolet Opala. Sure. It's in between the Camaro and the Chevelle. It's right. bigger than the Camaro. It's smaller than the Chevelle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's very unique. And, uh, and I just found one. Uh, in a tiny city i i took it to california It took it nine months to come here and i'm rebuilding it i'm very excited about it it's a 1976 opala Chevrolet ss and uh and opala 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 and i think that may be the first
1: ss uh in california wow, so that. i'm excited about that that is sort of an unusual car not quite an opal, not quite a. a I, I don't even know how else I would describe that.
2: It's not a Nova, not a Chevelle, not a Camaro. It's something different.
1: Huh? Quite, quite interesting. Uh, and uh, uh, does it use standard Chevy parts? So Everything
2: you know, is the original engine. Is the inline six that was in the Camaros all the way to 1979?
1: So I'm going to say that's probably the thing that people don't know about you. Yes, that. We have been speaking with Cristiano Amman, president of Qualcomm. If you enjoy this conversation, uh, be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the previous 300 or so such conversations we've had over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Go to Apple iTunes and please give us a review. Be sure and check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Sign up for the daily reads at ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps me put this little conversation together each week. Mark Siniscalchi is my audio engineer. Sam Shivraj is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.